Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Matt Ramuzzi is the founder of CapForge, Inc., a bookkeeping and accounting firm with over a thousand clients. Matt has been involved in hundreds of business deals, working with both buyers and sellers, as well as having bought and sold his own businesses. Matt, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> so, Matt, listen, I, you know, I mean, I've gotten to know you a little bit, and it is so it's such a good deal experience in your various iterations of, uh, of business, uh, which many of us have had as well. But before we get into, uh, into that stuff and the more current stuff, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. Uh, what did you want to be? Because um, for most folks, it's not what they're doing now. And certainly, they usually don't anticipate being deal makers. <laughs> so you tell me. Right. Well, I might be the exception. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I watched my dad every day put on a jacket and a tie and go off to a job he hated. And I said, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to wear a jacket and tie. And I definitely don't want to go do something I hate every day. So even as a kid, I, you know, I was always dreaming up these great ideas. I was going to have a t-shirt business and then I was going to have a pet sitting business and this and that. And, you know, it took me until my mid twenties before I finally got myself out the door and on the road of being an entrepreneur, but it had always been in the back of my head. And, and honestly, it's one of those things where had I made it to, you know, my seventies and never had my own business, it would have been a, a regret. I would have, you know, felt, I would have felt like I'd let myself down. So I always wanted to do it, but it took me a good, you know, good long while to finally pull the trigger and make it happen. Love it. Love it. So, you know, one of these uh, somewhat born entrepreneurs, which there are some of us you know, of, which is very cool. What was one, one other question looking back? What was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were a kid or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. First thing you consider a deal. So uh, the first thing I did as a deal, uh, the first thing I did at all as a business, um, I right out of the MBA program, I got hired at a consulting firm and that was small business owners. They were putting them together with venture capital and lenders. And I got super involved in that. I loved it. I loved the aspect of negotiating, of working on both sides of the table. And so the first deal that we put together was a venture capital raise for a business that was making what at the time seemed super innovative. It, it was a device that you could both put uh, a DVD into and a video cassette. And, oh, wow. you know, they thought, <laughs> ooh, this is amazing. And it had a hard drive built in. So it was kind of like an early DVR. Yeah. So, you know, it was this three-way piece of electronics and we helped them raise money and it was you know, interesting to me to sit down and kind of figure out how do we negotiate this? What do we bring to the table? And because when you're not on the money side, right, when you're on the ask side, it, you always feel like 
you're the underdog, right? They've got the money. If they say, no, I'm screwed, right? Now I got to go chase more money. So it was kind of learning how to deal from not a position of power, but at least try to be on the level, right? Look, we're bringing something to the table too. We're bringing an opportunity for you to invest capital that could potentially great bring you a great, you know, return on your investment. So trying to get through that mindset and just all the different learning that was involved in that. So that was my first deal. They raised some money. It it didn't end up going where as a a product, but (laughs) that was the first deal I was involved in where I really felt like, man, I am learning. It's like one of that expression, right? You're building the plane as you're flying it. I was (laughs) learning deal making as I was doing deals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> love it. Love it. So t- take us on the evolution, because I know you've had an evolution in various incarnations. Uh, a lot of it has been deal related, you know, just so might as well just keep going, going through the chronology. What what did yeah. you, what, what'd you do there? What, what did that lead to? Take us so, so from the consulting side, I mean, the, the downside to me of consulting was that, you know, it was very episodic, right? You might get in, in with a couple of good clients and get a couple of big deals going. But then as soon as those deals either fell apart or came to fruition, you're sort of back on the treadmill looking for more clients and more stuff to do. So I uh, kind of switched gears a little bit and got involved in some online businesses, which were great. You know, my own things, I started them, they developed into some passive income for me. And that seemed like a good thing, but I didn't want to rest on my laurels and the way online businesses work. One day you're at the top of Google and you're killing it. And the next day you're on page two and it was like crickets. So Uh, I was looking around for an acquisition that I wanted to sort of hedge my bets with the online business with something I thought I should get into something brick and mortar and something I had experience with. I had a lot of experience in the restaurant business, had been a general manager at a number of different places. And so I came across this catering business for sale. And I, you know, again, used the things I'd learned. I went in, I negotiated a good price. I got an SBA loan to do the acquisition. I ended up buying this catering business and they were very sort of, you know, old school. They had good recipes, good food, good word of mouth, but no, you know, online presence, no real marketing savvy, no processes and procedures in place. So I could bring, I felt I could bring that to the table. And so that was my first deal where I was sort of dealing on my own behalf, right? And I acquired that business. I grew it for four years and then I ended up selling it also without using a broker. I sold it on my own. Again, thinking, you know, right or wrong, (laughs) I can do this. I don't need to pay somebody a commission. I can work this out. So I ended up selling that. And that was a great sort of end-to-end experience to buy it, grow it, sell it all, you know, on my own dime and with my own you know, everything at stake myself, no outside investors. No, I wasn't a consultant on this. It was my yeah, deal. You were a principal for the first time. I was, I was it. So that was a great experience too. Yeah. So let, let's, let's uh, take a pause there and really let's, so let's examine that deal a little bit. So you said, a, you know, you said a few things that I want to point out. One, obviously, you know, you decided to buy it. Second of all, you went for financing and that happened to be SBA. And that's certainly a great vehicle for folks, you know, out there, um, Obviously, I mean, and during the pandemic, there were additional types of loans available and things like that. Right. Um, but there are so also some requirements to meet and also, uh, you know, a personal guarantee on uh, on, on that loan, right? Well, the SBA, yep. traditional SBA loans are P- require PGs. So you, you really are putting yourself on the line, right? right? But you saw, and this is, you know, this is the key thing that I always want to um, uh, look at is that the deals that work best are deals where the seller is going to get fair value for what they built, 
However, the buyer can see the opportunity to increase value. And, you know, so I want to just highlight, because Matt said that very quickly, he said they had solid recipes, they had good reputation, they had what, right? So they, you know, he went through a mini list of like, what is the, what they had that created value, whatever he paid for it, we don't need to know the number, but, but he also saw what was missing in terms of the opportunity for additional value. And that's really one of the key things you want to do when you're buying a business, right? So, so you, I don't know if you want to delve into that a little more in terms of like the value they had versus the value so you could add. Uh, and then, you know, even if you want to do in, in percentages or auto magnitudes, again, we don't need dollar amounts in terms of what you were able to do, buy versus sell. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was, a, it was a good deal to me because one, like I said, I had experience in the restaurant business. So I wasn't scared of that. You know, I always feel like, the best business to buy is one where it's like walking into a room full of friends, right? You know people, you feel comfortable, you speak the language, you know the layout, right? There might be some things that are new, some people you haven't met yet, but it's mostly comfortable. If if your deal feels like walking into a room full of strangers, they don't speak, you, do, you don't speak the language, you don't know the lay of the land, you don't know anybody there, that's a tough deal, man. That's, you've got a lot to learn really fast. You don't know who the good guys are, the bad guys are. You don't know how any of that works, right? That's a scary situation. So I felt good about it because I understood the restaurant business. And, you know, although this was catering, it's a little bit of a different animal. It's still, you know, fundamentally fairly similar. So I felt like I knew that. What I could see right away that they didn't do well at all. They didn't have any good processes. They didn't have any good procedures. Every day it was like a new day. It was like, you know, everything's on fire, right? Oh my gosh, this is, everything's a disaster. And the way it worked out was for 25 years, this place had been under one owner. He'd built a great reputation. He was a fantastic cook. He built good community referrals and he knew all the venues and everything, right? And then he decided to retire. And he sold it to this brother and sister whose father bought the business for them in the hopes of making their relationship better, right? They didn't get along that well. Well, guess what? Running a business together doesn't foster <laughs> friendship, no. and, right? They were at each other like cats and dogs. So, you know, she was running the front office and she'd send orders back to the kitchen and he'd say, I'm not doing that, you know? So just nuts, right? There was just no good harmony in that business. And then he was trying to do it all himself, and he was not the cook that the original guy was, and he didn't like to manage people, so he was perpetually sort of understaffed, and he just wasn't, you know, his way to manage people was yell at them, so you know, that doesn't get the best results, right? So I'd spend enough time in kitchens and managing restaurants to know how to manage people, so I could just see that what was holding them back was not lack of business. It was mm -hmm. them. It was the owners themselves, this brother and sister that just didn't know what they were doing. And then the other beautiful thing from a deal perspective on this was, you know, for, so I got the SBA loan where, you know, they cover the majority and then you put an, a certain amount down. I got negotiated a seller note for part of what the down was. Okay. And then because it's a catering business, right, where they all the orders come up front with deposits, right? So I was going to take over as of a certain date. I was getting all the deposits that they'd been holding for all future events, yes. right? So the day I closed, I handed them a check for my portion of the down payment, less the seller note. And then they handed me a check right back for all the deposits. So net out of pocket, I paid 3% of the deal in cash for mm. this thing. That was fantastic. And then over the course of four years, the revenue went up by about 100%. 
and net profit nearly doubled. So when I sold it, I had a great story to tell. I felt like I was stealing the thing, which, you know, obviously I signed up to pay back a giant SBA loan and whatever I was on. And and of course you had had work you had to deliver, which had expenses in connection with those deposits you have. So yeah, it wasn't that moment. In the moment, it felt like, man, I'm getting a great deal here, (laughs) which was fantastic. And then over the course of the four years that I owned it, sales went up by about a hundred percent and profits nearly doubled as a percent. So I had a great story to tell. You know, I was a growth story, increasing profits, increasing revenue every year, year over year, improved processes, improved systems, you know, improved uh, client list and referrals and everything else. So when I sold it, I was able to sell it for a very good price as well. So all in, it was a fantastic deal and a great learning experience for me where, you know, mm-hmm. it was my deal. I was, I was the one behind the whole thing. I wasn't as, you know, doing it as a consultant it was all me. I had my own money, my own time and reputation on the line for it. Are, are you willing to say on a percentage basis or whatever, what, you know, what, uh, how much more you uh, sold it for than you bought it? It was about double. Fair enough. I mean, revenues and profit were about double. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, that makes sense. Although in certain businesses, uh, you can get higher multiples as you go up. So you, you, you can do more than right. it started, but, um, you know, it was modest size when I right. bought it. And so even getting bigger, right. we were, I wasn't able to get the same yeah. multiple band. Yeah. Right. So, so that's great. And then obviously you also, I'm sure pulled out some money along the way. Yeah. Right. You know, so, so that's what a great story, right. You know, uh, you know, four years, you, you buy your first business, you make money during the way you get to sell it for double what, you know, what you paid for it. That's great. Okay. So now you're an entrepreneur and a deal maker, uh, you know, uh, done your first deal, you sold your business. Um, what, what do you do now? So the next thing I did was I got into business broker because, you know, I had sold this business. I bought it, uh, you know, just on my own with, from a broker. And then I sold it without using a broker. And I thought, you know, the next logical place I should do, because I was thinking at this point, I was, you know, this acquisition went so well. I got in at the right time. I grew it. I sold it at the right time. I should look for another business to buy. And the best place to do that would be from a broker's seat where, you know, I can look at whatever's coming on the market. If I don't particularly want it, I can sell it and earn a commission. If I do want it, then I'm in before anybody else. Um, And so that's what I did. I got my broker's license and, uh, you know, brokered 36 deals over the next several years and never found anything I wanted to buy. But again, I I just learned a ton of the psychology behind buyers and sellers, what motivates them, what trips them up, how the different stages of the deal, you know, at the very beginning of the deal, right, the seller is real cagey and the buyer is all excited. And then by the end of the deal, you know, the sellers just say, I don't care, you know, give me a dollar for it. I don't care. I just want it done. Right. And the buyer is going, I don't know if I want to buy this anymore. It seems like, you know, now that we're about the verge of me owning this thing, ah, maybe I just want to go back to my nice, safe career, my W-2 paycheck. <laughs> you know, you're just kind of seeing that evolution and knowing where you're at in the cycle and, and the psychology of both sides. And, you know, when is a good time to push and when is a good time to lay back and all that kind of stuff. It, it was a phenomenal education in deal making. And again, you know, working for both sides, normally in a business sale, the broker is representing the seller and the buyer typically doesn't have their own representation. They may have an attorney to look things over or, you know, uh, whatever, an accountant for due diligence, but they generally don't have their own counsel and they end up relying on the broker as well for, you know, help me understand this, help me 
talk to this guy, help me figure out the deal. So you, you really end up working with both sides pretty much throughout end to end. And it was just a great education in, in deals. So, so it's interesting. So, you know, you start out, right, you're, you're doing consulting on, on larger, high-level finance-driven deals, right? Then you have your own small business, you have that experience. Then on the brokerage side, talk to me about, like, what was it uh, mainly uh, in the SMB or the middle market, or what was it? Uh, in yeah, kind of you it, it was kind of all over the place. But I mean, on the smaller end, you know, $100,000 was like the smallest deal up to, you know, mid seven figures was kind of the biggest deal. And, and most of them were right in that low seven figure yeah. Valuation range. Yeah, so, kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. you're not generally dealing with management teams. You're dealing with yeah. owner operators who've gotten to a decent size, but they're still basically owner operators at heart. They're not, you know, you're not dealing with investors and management teams for the most part. There was a couple deals, but by and large, it was sort of owner operator uh, types of, of owners. Yeah. And let's talk about that a little bit, right? Because there is a distinction in how you get deals done. You know, when you're doing big deals, you know, where there's management teams and, you know, finance teams, and do you know, whatever. Uh, and also, usually at that size, you know, the, I mean, the sellers are different, but the buyer and the buyer is different as well. Right. I mean, right. Uh, and, and, and also the players involved, you know, there's much more likely to be a broker or an investment banker involved in those bigger deals, whereas the smaller deals, you might have a broker or nothing. Yeah. So, you know, what is like, let's just stick with those on an operator deals uh, for a moment. Like who are the likely buyers of the, you know, of those deals, right? I mean, I, there are different scenarios where I've seen it, but I'd love to get your take. Yeah. So, I mean, there's generally two kinds of buyers. There's either the people who are, you know, maybe high level corporate guys or, you know, people who've done well in another business and they're looking to take on something else. They're, you know, they may plan to grow and build into a management team, but they're basically dealing with their own funds or, you know, borrowed funds, SBA yep. loans, that kind of thing. That's the biggest pool, I would say, of buyers in that scenario. And then the other is, you know, small strategic buyers who, you know, are saying they may, they have a business that's maybe two to three to five times bigger than the target. And they're saying, you know, this is a good fit for us because it's a complementary brand or it's a space we're trying to get into or geographically, you know, they're in Orange County, they're looking to expand to San Diego or something. So they'll make an acquisition like that. They'll bring some of their people down to kind of run the new location or what have you. Those tend to be the two kinds of buyers in this smaller space. And then when you get up into the bigger deals, then yeah, it's, you know, more strategic acquisitions, or it might even be private equity interest or what have you, different, different kind of buyer, different kind of deal. When people aren't playing with their own money, it's just a different level of, you know, involvement. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And different analyses and whatever. And, you know, so what is in those kind of deals on the smaller side deals and the owner operator deals, what are some of the biggest lessons you learned? Like, you know, where did deals go wrong? Where did deals not happen? Where did deals that happen? Maybe they shouldn't happen. You know, like, what, you know, uh, what are some of the things you, you, you would say? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And one of the downsides to me of, of that business was a lot of deals fell apart for reasons I had zero control over. Right. You know, you'd work on a deal for three or four months, you'd have everything in place, the financing, everything else. And then literally one night, you know, I get a call at 10 o'clock the night before the deal's supposed to close. And the guy says, hey, Matt, I hate to tell you, but the deal's off. It turns out my wife let me know she wants a divorce. And now we're going to have to figure out assets. But and it's the whole thing. I can't sell the business. I, you know, nothing I did wrong. Nothing the buyer did wrong. You know, just life event. 
came in and just took a big dump on the deal. And on a much larger deal, the, the, the odds of a single person's life event impacting that deal going right. forward or not are way, I'm not saying occasionally, but for the most part, they're slim to none. Whereas in this market, it's, you know, I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you know, in a, in a larger deal where there's more parties involved and there's no single point of failure like that, you know, it's unlikely that something like that's going to, really screw things up. But in these smaller deals, it can happen. I mean, another thing that can happen is just emotions get involved. Um, you know, I think you and I had been chatting offline about the, the wine deal that I did. Uh, it was an urban winery. And, you know, these guys have been going back and forth for months, all kinds of deal points. And then, you know, at the last minute, they had a little tasting room and in the tasting room, you know, there was a bunch of signs on the wall, you know, little cutesy sayings and stuff. And, you know, I guarantee you, right. These sellers, if I blindfolded them, they couldn't have named one thing on one of those signs. Right. They hadn't looked at it in seven years, but, but the guy, you know, the buyer says, well, of course, you know, when they say I might rehang some of these and they go, oh, those signs aren't part of the deal. We're not giving you those signs. We're taking them with us. And the, and the buyer's like, well, I, I'm not buying the business if those signs aren't included. I'm thinking that that's a $20 sign you can buy at Home Goods. You're going to blow up a million dollar deal on a $20 sign that neither of you really care about it, but they just get all, ah, you know, there's no way I'm giving you that sign. And if you don't give me that sign and I'm just going, I'll buy the sign, I'll, you know, I'll buy you new signs. Okay, please. Let's just, let's just move on. And it's just that silly stuff that, you know, that should be a, a rounding error. That should be a non-issue, right? If there's a hundred thousand dollar difference in what the buyer wants, the seller wants, okay, let's negotiate that. But the sign, you know, come on. But it's just funny that people get these emotional attachments or imaginary emotional attachments to stuff. And that can torpedo deals where you have to just kind of talk everyone off the cliff. Like, okay, let's just, let's stop and think about this for a minute. Do you really care about the sign? Do you really need the signs? It, you know, let's compromise. You take three, you keep three. Oh my, you're, you're thinking in the whole time, you're thinking in your head, really, this is what I'm, <laughs> this no, is what it, we're it, fighting about? That is interesting. <laughs> and listen, any of us who do this stuff, I mean, one of my, one of my corporate associates who, you know, works on uh, our deals just said to me this morning, he said, you know, Corey, and it's not the first time I've heard this, I've said it. You know, he said, sometimes I feel like I'm an unlicensed therapist. <laughs> you know, like, like you know, that's part of what we do, right? You know, Absolutely. it's unlicensed therapy to try to have people work through their issues so that they can see clearly and, and do a good deal if it's meant to be done or, or you know, from a clear place, not, not from uh, being right. your ego being engaged over a sign, you know, make, make a decision about a deal. So, uh, yeah, totally, totally. It's, and it's so, it's so different. And, and yeah, and that rarely... I mean, listen, I guess there are definitely examples of huge deals with big CEOs, with big egos, where the egos get involved. But for the most part, you know, throughout the process, they have teams that if you could make a criticism on the other side on big deals is that, you know, it's almost too mechanical and too logical, right? It's all about the numbers. It's all about what are, you know, sometimes they they have trouble seeing some of the intangible opportunities and values that smaller entrepreneurs see because they're, they're just crunching, you know, they're crunching numbers and running financials and, you know. And counting beans, so to speak, but um, so very interesting. Well, Wait, I got an, an example. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, an example on on the bigger side, we had a deal where you know it was a fairly large buyer acquiring a medium sized deal, 
And they were talking in the conference room. And to your point about sort of being too detached, right? The, the guy in charge of the bigger company is kind of just running down the list and, you know, makes the very offhanded comment of, you know, something along the lines of, well, of course, we'll be letting the entire accounting department go. And one of the accounting department people's in the meeting going, <laughs> what do you mean let the entire account, you know, just like, he just he wasn't thinking, you know, these are people, these are job careers. Right, these right, are people been in the company for 20 <laughs> years. And, you know, you know, oh, well, of course, we'll let the entire accounting department, you know, and we could save money there. And he's just thinking, oh, I'll save 250K in payroll. And the county people are like, what do you, what do you mean? Let the account. So you just have to stop, look around, think about what you're saying. I mean, maybe that is your plan and maybe that's logical and maybe that's what you're going to do. But, hmm, you know, kind of read the room, right? So yeah, that happens too. The other way, they're just too casual about it. And of course the guy selling feels bad. Well, you know, I want to sell, but you're going to fire all my people. And uh, it was just, that was not a good meeting. So it goes both ways. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So now you you do 30 some, I think you said 30 some odd deals over a few years or 50 some, I forgot what it was. But um, now you decide to evolve to your next evolution. What had you decide to leave business brokering and then what did you do from there? One of the things that I saw in virtually every deal, and, and this applies to even large business deals too, mm-hmm. but for sure the owner operator in, in smaller and mid-sized businesses, right? The first thing you do in any deal in any broker situation is you go and do evaluation, right? In the valuation, you want to say, okay, let's look at your financial statements, look at the trailing 12 months, look at the last few years, look at the tax return, see it. And over and over and over again, what I would hear was, oh yeah, oh, the books. Well, yeah, there's some problems or, oh, we're a little behind or, oh, Aunt Sue's been doing it, but I'm not sure she knows what she's doing. And you go, okay, well guys, look, we. <laughs> I can't even put a number on this thing until we get all this cleaned up because, you know, that's the first thing a buyer is going to do is want to know, well, how much is this thing worth? And we've got to hand them reliable numbers that are going to stand up for the due diligence, right? If they fall completely apart in due diligence, that's going to torpedo the whole deal or at, at least, you know, at worst, right? Or at best, you're going to get a significant renegotiation of your LOI when they find out that the numbers you were claiming are nothing close to reality. So, after having had that happen a hundred times, you know, I had maybe the opportunity here instead of buying a business is maybe I get into that small business accounting. And I kind of looked like I always do, right? As if I was going to buy a business or get into a new industry, look around, what does the competition look like? Well, the competition looked like a bunch of stodgy old CPA firms who charged a lot, who charged by the hour, who, you know, during the whole uh, you know, January to May timeframe didn't do anything, right? Or you have the kind of independent one-off, you know, Gladys and Shirley doing bookkeeping services, again, yeah. charging hourly, not being real responsive and and being very focused on just sort of the accounting. They had a, this very mm-hmm. narrow tunnel vision of, you know, I can tell you about 
debits and credits, but I can't really help you understand if your business is doing all right or not. So I thought, you know, there's a great opportunity here to provide quality bookkeeping services at the at a higher accounting level for a reasonable fixed flat rate price with good customer service. And that's what we launched with. And a thousand clients, you know, later, 55 employees, the formula seems to be working. <laughs> so, well, well, I will tell you that it's amazing to me how many, you know, so I've been an active member of entrepreneurs organization for a long time. I took a little break off for a couple of years and came back. But the point is that entrepreneurs organization is, you know, 14, 15,000 members and I don't know, 30, 40, maybe 50 some countries now, um, you know, all running businesses that are a million and above. So it's, you know, they're running, you know, I mean, there's, there's different business, obviously, profit margins at, at that level are very different for a certain business. But the point is, you, once you considering there's only a couple of few percent of businesses that run that are a million dollars in revenue and above, you're talking about, you know, a certain level of business. One of the most common questions on all the message boards and Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups or whatever it is, 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 is anybody have a good bookkeeper? I'm not happy with my bookkeeper. Did my, you know, you know, Agnes retired uh, and now I don't know who, you know, whatever, or, you know, I'm not getting, you know, and certainly, and listen, frankly, we, we, we even, um, you know, I've, I've had a quality bookkeeper, but we, we just actually had an outsource CFO service because, you know, we, I, I need more sort of, you know, forward thinking, dynamic planning stuff and whatever, uh, but not everybody's in a position to do that. You know, I mean, CFO services are, you know, are not, are not cheap, you know, it's, it's high level stuff and it's, it's not warranted in, in various businesses, but, you know, I'm amazed at how often, how tough it is to find, and I've had that experience, good quality bookkeepers that you keep for, you know, a period of time that are reliable and yeah. And, so uh, I definitely see the opportunity in the marketplace and obviously you've grown, you know, uh, you know, significantly. I mean, there are, I, I can't imagine there are, there are many firms out there that have the number of clients and the, and the number of uh, bookkeepers that you have. Most of them are mom and pop, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely in the, you know, fraction of 1% territory for the size we are with the book is bookkeeping emphasis. I mean, we do have a tax side as well, but bookkeeping is sort of our bread and butter main service. It's yeah. what we're most known for and what we tend to lead with. And yeah, I, I mean, like I said, most bookkeepers are one man or one woman operations that have, you know, between five and 10 clients and, you know, they're, they're either not thinking about how to grow beyond their own skill set or they're just not equipped to or whatever, you know, and there's no test like, you know, for CPA, right? It's a pretty rigorous education you need and you need to take the test and then you need so many hours of practice before you can get signed off. Whereas a bookkeeper, anybody can say, I'm a bookkeeper, like literally with no qualifications whatsoever. And it seems right. to happen fairly often. Right. You know, oh, I've done QuickBooks for a couple of months. I'm probably a bookkeeper. Well, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's our competition. So as a result, it's fish in a barrel, right? It's very easy for us to come in and say, oh, I see what you had. Here's what we can offer. And they go, wow, that's fantastic. Or, you know, you didn't have anything and we can do better than that. So great. So it's been a, a great uh, experience. But then as a result, you know, a lot of our clients are thinking about an exit. And so we've helped a lot of clients uh, from that side of the deal table. And then a lot of clients too are looking at acquisitions as a path to growth. And so again, we get involved in the due diligence, uh, helping them scope out an acquisition and integrate it once they brought it on board. So again, it's been, it's been fun for me with my background to be in a position to assist with that and see kind of you know, what I can do to help add value beyond, again, just the bookkeeping, which is not as much of a commodity as you'd think. Mm -hmm. um, but then beyond that, you know, being able to add additional value on the deal side has been a lot of fun. 
Which is great. And then obviously, you know, obviously, I mean, the lead up, uh, we talked about is that the clients you've been working with for a while, uh, once they go to do deals, right, they don't have that scramble to clean up. Like, you know, I mean, they're set already on that, right? Now, obviously, you're going to you're gonna help them further, right, with, with, with the due diligence on the deal and some projections on how that's going to go. But, but, you, but they don't have, you know, listen, we see the same thing on the legal side, right? You know, we'll go in and any, any smart professional, whether it's on the finance side or the legal side, whatever, you know, is going to go in and do what I call pre-due diligence, right? We know what the buyer's going to be looking for. We're going to look for it first. Right. So, so these, you know, the client puts their best foot forward and we don't like, we don't want the buyer to find anything. We want to find it before the buyer would find it and get right. ready. So, you know, for us, that could look like, you know, contracts that have not been renewed, uh, right? That they just keep, you know, going that have expired, right? You know, the inability to find certain key key legal documents or, you know, or, or, or you know, or agreements. You know, regulatory, if we're in a regulated industry, we do stuff in the financial services space. There's a lot of regulated stuff, making sure they're all, you know, clean on that. So it's a similar thing. And obviously, if they've been working with good counsel and or good financial folks, then they don't have to because that can become a scramble sometimes, right? right. You know? And if they don't have to do that scramble and they could just be like, it's literally in theory tomorrow. Now, obviously, you know, you, you don't want to, but you know, in theory tomorrow, they can produce a financial statement that's reliable to a buyer. What, oh, what a luxury, what a great thing that is. Then they can focus on the positive parts of trying to get a deal done. Right. I mean, the last thing you ever want in a deal is a surprise, right? Where the, the buyer comes and says, hey, what about this? I found this. How do you explain it? And you're like, I didn't know about that. Well, that, oh gosh, you never want to be in that situation, right? You want to go, of course, we've seen that. And here's the answer and the explanation. And this is why it is. And you, any other questions, right? That's, you always want to find anything else you've got, right? You don't want to be like, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and there's really a couple of things to emphasize that. One is obviously you don't want to be that way because, you know, you know, like if, for example, there is something that's off in your numbers or whatever it could affect, you know, you can think you're getting X deal and now suddenly, you know, they want to recharacterize something on the financial statements and whatever. And now it's costing your purchase price. But at least as, you know, as much as, you know, I always, I say this often, buyers and certainly people who work for buyers, whether they're the outside professionals or if they have in-house people who are doing any kind of due diligence, they're always trained to look for anything that's wrong because the last thing they want to do is actually have that surprise later after they close right. and have a problem. So the problem is, even if it's not a huge thing, the minute, if they really find something and you don't have a good, quick answer for it on the financials or it could be on the legal side or whatever, um, it starts to shake confidence in the deal because it's Absolutely. the, well, if this smoke was the fire, like, is there any, like, oh, wait, they, they didn't have this one buttoned up. Are there two or three or 10 other things I don't know about that I haven't caught? Now the buyer, now the buyer starts getting worried, right? So you actually risk the entire deal on this stuff. Whereas if it's something they find and you have a great explanation for it, well, you still may have a negotiation. Maybe they have a like I remember a deal I did with a public buy or whatever, and you know my clients actually had good financial statements, but the the, the accountants for the public buyer had a view on an accounting view on how something was categorized, you know, categorized or characterized that was different from the position that, you know, my client's accountants took, right? And it was a legitimate discussion and dispute and whatever, and, and you know, interpretation of the accounting rules because tax and accounting is not always black and white. There, there's really. gray areas, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was a legitimate disagreement, but my, my client had an answer for it. And even better, I've told the story in full, I won't tell it again. Even better, we knew the buyer really needed us. And we also, they were a public company. So we knew they, we knew in order to meet their numbers, they needed, like we were the only 
really company that in the time frame could fit it. So we were able to hold firm on that, not because their accounts were wrong, but because we knew we had leverage. Um, but you don't, that's not always the case, right? You know, oh, so there's going to be legitimate, you know, uh, uh, you know, issues that may come up uh, in terms of interpretations of accounting treatment. You don't want the ones where you're like, oops, we're wrong. Right. Well, and that's what I tell clients too, because sometimes they'll say, well, that's just a little thing. It doesn't, but the thing is, even if it's not material to the deal, either the number is too small or whatever, it's exactly what you said, right? Once they can say, well, we found this issue, we found this issue and we found this issue. Now we have no confidence. Now we just don't know how many other things are that could be a whole landmine, you know, field of problems just because we haven't found it. We found these three and you didn't really, you know, and even though, well, that's what's $10, but they're like, oh, mistake's a mistake. You know, so you you never want to cross that line because it's very hard to come back. It, it's almost impossible to rebuild the trust. At minimum, you're going to take a hit on the price, if not lose the deal altogether. So you just, I mean, even if it's a small thing, you got to have it tight, right? And I always tell clients too, my philosophy is, and the way we do the bookkeeping and accounting for you, and I think your philosophy as a business owner should be, look, run the thing like you're going to sell it tomorrow, even yep. if you never sell it run it like you could sell it tomorrow. If there's slop, if there's miscellaneous stuff, if there's stuff you could throw out or whatever, do it, right? Don't wait. Don't, you know, like when people want to sell their house, right? They're scrambling around trying to paint stuff and fix the chip tile and make the garage door didn't work. And you know, the buyers are coming. Well, fix all that stuff as you go, as you all along, you know, cause you never know, especially as a business owner, you might out of the blue, get somebody, Hey, listen, I'd be interested in buying that. And I, you don't want to say, well, look, it's going to take me six months to get this thing in shape before I can show it to you. Right. You want to <laughs> well, have right. it ready to go. And the house analogy is, is phenomenal because you always think like a lot of people do that. And then they're like, wow, this house is like better the day before we sold it than we ever lived in it. It's like, right. you know, so like why not have a working garage door while you were right. living there? You know, like it's supposed to whatever. And you know, why, why not have a business that really is not either wasting money or you don't know your numbers or whatever. I mean, it's, right. it's actually much, much better life whether you sell or not, but yeah. it does yourself. Yeah. I, I think that's just a, it's a smart way to kind of mentally have it in your mind. This look, I'm going to run this thing tight. I'm going to maximize profit. I'm going to keep it neat and organized and no yep. slop. And then even if I never sell it, I know I'm getting the most out of it. And when I am ready to sell, I could literally on a dime, put the thing on the market and be ready to go. I don't have to do all this big cleanup and do fix it. And, oh, we got to get the margins up and get a six month track record of better margins to show. Like you've already been doing that or you should already listen, be doing folks, that. I don't, I don't want to be, you know, but you could say, hey, I'm not selling for another 10 or 15 years, but listen, we never know. I mean, I've been doing this long enough. Mm -hmm. A health issue comes up, something happens, whatever, you know, next thing you know, you're even at more risk of losing value. And that time that it takes, like if you're under pressure to sell because health issues are very common, unfortunately thing, you know, as people sell earlier, especially in these kind of businesses, right? That are more owner operated uh, than they anticipated. Well, the last thing you want to do is be dealing with a health issue and then having to rush to, you know, figure out all this stuff at a time when you're probably under pressure to take, you know, less money anyway, because if they know, you know, you have a health issue, you know, then, um, you know, you, they have leverage already. So there's so many reasons to do it. Matt, um, so with the thousand clients, I'm assuming, uh, and, and the way things work these days with bookkeeping, 
I'm guessing maybe you have more of a concentration locally, but I'm guessing you have clients all over the country. Yes. Uh, we do. Yeah. In fact, uh, all 50 states we hit a little while back. And then actually we've got international clients as well. I mean, predominantly people located, you know, outside the U.S., but owning U.S. entities. Uh, but sometimes, you know, owning international entities as well, or, you know, one of each, one in the U.S., one outside. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're really geographically agnostic, which is a great place to be. And in this day and age, everybody's working remote, everybody's online and Zoom meetings and everything else. So really, there's no reason to kind of say, you know, we're just San Diego or we're just Southern California. Um, we're, we're, wherever you, you need us to be, <laughs> we can be there. <laughs> right. So Matt, if people wanted to find out more about your company uh, and what you're up to, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, the best place to find us is our website, capforge.com. It's got lots of information about us and me and what we do and the services we offer and some pricing info and that kind of stuff. And then if that looks interesting to you at all, you know, feel free to reach out. Email is great or phone call. I'm happy to talk to anybody, you know, whether you think you could be a client or not, or you're not sure, you know, let's have a conversation. I love meeting new people, talking to entrepreneurs. If we can help you, great. If you're not ready or it's not a fit, no problem. You know, we'll help each other somewhere else down the road. So and, uh, that's the best place. Great. Great. So give it again, capforge.com. Capforge.com. All right. Perfect. And ideal client, you know, what's the range of clients? Is it's in that smaller, medium-sized business uh, range? or give Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got everybody from startups to our biggest clients, 110 million in annual revenue. But a sweet spot, I would say, is, you know, 500K to, to 5 million is where most of our clients fall. There's a good range right. from, you know, from 5 million to 25 million and a handful from, you know, under 500K. But, you know, again, if you're not sure, you're probably, you know, you're not big enough to have an in-house accountant or accounting team, but you need the help, obviously. Give us a call. If we can help, Great. If not, I you know might have a referral for you or something else I can help you with. Perfect. Matt, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is uh, freedom. Mm -hmm. And for me, that means everything from freedom for all people around the world for oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and haven't had a boss in, you know, in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom to me means really being able to decide how I spend my time. Right. Being an entrepreneur and wanting to be an entrepreneur was always like I shared earlier. Right. I didn't want to have to get up with an alarm clock and go to work and do stuff I didn't want to do. Spend time helping somebody else do stuff I didn't want to help with or whatever. It's, so to me, it's freedom is self-determination. Right. I come in and work hard every day because I want to. Right. And then when I want to take off, I want to do something with the family or, you know, my daughter has a recital or my son has a soccer game. I can go and do that. And I'm not nobody's telling me I can't. And nobody's saying, hey, you've got to stick around or you got to whatever. So to me, the freedom is self-determination. I can decide how much I work, when I work, how hard, you know, how much I earn for my efforts, all that kind of stuff. So I'm 100 percent with you. That to me is the most important thing. Money is nice. But the time is the part that you don't get more of. And mm -hmm. I want to be in control of my time. Love it. Matt Ramuzzi, thank you so much for being on the DealQuest podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise 
in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.